0: Think about the concept of rare. It's often synonymous with unique, valuable, precious. But what about in the context of disease? Rare diseases are defined as having an extremely low prevalence, yet an estimated 30 million Americans have one. That's one in 10 people. Listen as we uncover some of the inspiring stories of lives touched by rare disease and see how, in the end, We all have rare in common.
1: I'm your host, Andra Stratton,
0: and I have a rare disease.
1: Since my diagnosis with partial lipodystrophy at age 37, I've become a voice for my community, first through the creation of the patient foundation, Lipodystrophy United, and now through public outreach and national awareness campaigns. Today, Rare in Common is coming to you during the COVID-19 pandemic. Normally, we are lucky enough to be able to record in studio or live at events. But as you know, the nation and the world um, are mostly following stay at home. So we thought this would be a good time to speak with some of our friends who have a lot of experience in both staying at home and dealing with the unknown. I am here today and speaking virtually with Dr. Nina Nazar, who is the Executive Director of the Janssen Foundation and a good friend of mine. And I'm also speaking with Seth Rotberg, um, who is the co-founder of Our Odyssey. Um, thank you both for joining me today. It is Uh, one of the benefits of uh, this virtual world that we're living in is that i can speak with you both at the same time um and we are kind of doing the same thing everyone else is doing which is is looking at each other via zoom and i'm sorry i'm not looking at you face to face but um, i am happy to talk with you so um, i want to just get started with hearing from each of you how you are managing um, this time of COVID-19.
2: Nina, you want to start? Yeah, absolutely. Andra, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, I've always enjoyed interacting uh, with you and also listening to the show. So it's really a pleasure to be on. So getting back to your question about what it's like uh, being stuck at home and what about this new normal that we've got going on? And I think it's a—it's uh, really interesting in that um, the fact is, is it a new normal for many of us or is this kind of just an extended normal for many of us? So in the rare disease community, this is, some of us, this is what it is like every day not to be kind of stuck at home. Um, you know, we have a disease called uh, Jansen's metaphyseal chondrodysplasia. And as a result of it, there's not a lot physically we can manage. So most of our days are spent at home. Um, so I, I think it's an interesting perspective um, when you hear from other people as to how they're coping. And I think there's a lot of resilience in the rare disease community but there's also a lot of difficulty that we face that uh, others don't know about. And so I think uh, this uh, pandemic has been a sort of equalizer of sorts, uh, at least giving others a glimpse into our world. So I think that's a, it's interesting. So
1: Nina, when you um, described we, I heard Two different we's. I heard you were referring to we as in the rare disease community, but then also we as
2: in your family, right? You wanna tell us a little bit about your family? Right. So, um, yes, uh, there. it's a collective we. Um, you know, I'm part of the rare disease uh, community, but I'm also a mom to two boys with uh, Jensen's disease. And so, um, you know, I, I think I speak a little from being a parent as well. Uh, of children who can't really um, go out and socialize the way other kids may. And so we've always had a different kind of normal. And so, um, you know, it was really interesting because uh, my boys in their classroom, they've been having talks about what it's like to be isolated. And, you know, my older son, Arshan, he's about 11 years old in the sixth grade. And he came and talked to me the other day and he said, mom, you know, what does that mean? What is isolated? And so I had to explain it to him. I had to break it down and say what this pandemic is actually doing for a lot of people. And he says, oh, oh, okay. Because for him, he's always been in many ways isolated. Um, So I told him, you know, it just means you can't go to the park and you can't play around and run and, and all that. And he looked at me and he said, mom, come on. When was the last time we went to the park? So you know they've had um, surgeries most of their lives, and so they've always been restricted in some way or the other. Um, they can't play freely in a park, and um, they definitely can't climb on monkey bars and stuff. They use a wheelchair most of the time, and so even recess in school is indoor recess for most of the uh, time. So I think you know it's it's very interesting to see. From a rare disease perspective, what that isolation means. And so I think the hardest thing for them has been trying to understand people from the, you know, outside the rare disease community and how they're reacting to being stuck at home when it's always been that way for them. So uh, it's kind of interesting, yes. Right. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to bring Seth
1: on as well um, because I think that there's your experience that you described, Nina, is very true for a lot of children with rare disease and and a lot of adults with rare disease. Um, But I I think that there's a a different experience maybe for um, young adults with rare disease. And Seth um, does a lot of work in the young adult um space with rare disease so Seth I know you well enough to know that you're probably not doing the jungle gym at um uh at the park or playing on the jungle gym at the park that often (laughs) but I do think you probably are typically out and about more so why don't you talk with both of us about what's going on um on your day-to-day with COVID-19.
3: Thanks again for having me on and can definitely relate a lot, probably both to, to both of you, of what's been going on. And yeah, I uh, I'm not the big jungle gym; I was more of the slide person at the uh, the playground. But yeah, I believe. It. <laughs> when it comes to specifically COVID-19, the the bigger challenge is how to explain the significance of it to young adults who we call the the healthy people in <laughs> in, in life. And I say that because. I think a lot of us have seen the videos of, you know, the, the college kids out in Florida, spring break, and they're just kind of like, I- I'm going to just do me and enjoy it. Not realizing how, how significant the the spread of it is, how contagious it is. I feel like it's kind of like a wildfire where it just continues to spread from one person to 10 people to hundreds to now thousands, hundreds of thousands around the world and, it's been challenging because I'm very fortunate. I'm not personally in that higher risk category, but I have family, I have friends, I have colleagues who are, whether they're, um, you know, elderly or due to their health condition. And so I'm trying to do my part, but it's also tough to explain that to my friends who are not in the health space to say, you know, here's why we need to stay inside. Here's why we need to, you know, keep six feet distance. And, You know, It it was frustrating at times, to be perfectly honest, because I'm trying to explain to them why we need to do all this. And I've tried to now just ask them more questions versus saying, you should do this. You should check this out and sending them links and resources and just saying, hey, check this out. Take a look. Let me know what you think. But I would just say it is tough because I'm scared for a lot of my close friends and family who are at high risk. I had my mom who was in a nursing facility and I was talking about how if this was happening when she was still alive, it would have been so tough because she was on the fifth floor. So it's not like I could just go to the window and I don't know if I would be able to get a ladder big enough to see her. So like for me, Uh it, it it would have just been very challenging to try to see her because she also likes to be around people and she doesn't want to be alone. And so I also kind of looked at it from that perspective of saying, well, You know, that's just one person now, you know, multiply that by all the other people who are at risk or who struggle dealing with loneliness. Um, And then you add on top of this COVID-19 and the uncertainty, it adds an increase in depression and anxiety level.
1: For sure. I think also what I have seen um, from people of all ages and rare is that they feel like this kind of moment is... Uh, a little bit of a trigger to maybe a, a a really acute health crisis that they've gone through in the past. I mean, typically with rare, we have chronic issues, but still, there's times where it can be more intense than others. Is this something that you have been talking about with your cohort in our Odyssey?
3: Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, our, our biggest thing was doing these in-person meetups, and now we have shifted over to virtual meetups and they've been great. And we have discussed a lot about COVID-19 and the impact it has. A lot of times it's just really just feeling anxious and feeling isolated and alone. And so they like to talk with other people who simply understand and get it, but it is scary because some people are nervous that they can't continue on a trial or, um, the ever so crisis of blood and plasma shortage or having to get access to home infusion. Uh, There's several people who I know have had challenges getting that access and they have to go through either their insurance company or go through their doctor to try to get that to happen or just rationing their medication, um, which could lead to flare ups. Some people we've spoken with have had those flare ups because they've had to either stop a medication or ration it out. And it's just scary to hear that because if someone does get sick, you know, it, it and they go to the hospital and the hospital is already at capacity, you know, it's, it's a tough decision for a doctor then to make saying, okay, do we help this person who's already sick? Or do we help this other person that might have a better chance of living, it, living? And I think that's kind of where we're all at is how do we kind of navigate that if it gets to that? But the, the last part, is just kind of the mental health part that I think we're all kind of, dealing with and, and being away from friends and family and not understanding when it will get back to quote unquote normal. Um, you know, people just in this young adult uh, area really just want to connect with others. And I think what we're just trying to do is give them that support, even if it's just a, a zoom call, for example, because it just helps them realize that they're not alone when dealing with it.
1: Yeah. You brought up a few points that um, Nina, I wanted to talk with you about. Um, One, Seth mentioned that, you know, with our Odyssey, they did a lot of in person meetups, and that's gone to virtual. And I know a lot of us have changed our schedules. Um, Nina, you were Going to be one of the keynote speakers at the World Orphan Drug Congress, and that has changed. So, uh, meaning the date has been uh, postponed. So, I wanted to talk with you about that, but I also wanted you to talk with us about your experience with how COVID nineteen is affecting clinical trials.
2: Right. I mean, Andra, like so much has changed in such a short span of time, and you know, I want to just uh, touch upon what Seth said about. The uncertainty, I mean, you know, we're all like in the rare disease space. we're all used to a certain level of uncertainty, but this is like taking uncertainty to another level altogether. Yeah. so, I mean, you know, how do you prepare for that kind of uncertainty? The uncertainty that, you know, there's not going to be any more access to therapy for God knows how long. Um, so my boys, uh, you know, they've been cut, cut off from physical therapy. Uh, there was an infection. Um, I mean, somebody got infected in their facility. And so that was stopped. And, you know, they're just recovering from surgery. And so they really needed that physical therapy. They needed the equipment and the access to equipment. And now they don't have it. So, you know, when will they stand up again? When will they take their first steps? I mean, these are all complete um, uncertainties that we are now dealing with. And so the the anxiety levels are really high, um, you know. For rare disease families like ours, you know, we have certain structures in place that help us um, get through a, a day. A lot of it is built around therapy, and you know, being able to go to school and get uh, therapies at school. The socialization factor. For our kids, has also been cut out now. In that, you know, we can't access some of those therapies that helped with socialization. So, I mean, there's so many unknowns, and so we're kind of just uh, bracing ourselves with that. But the the larger unknown now is the fact that our clinical trials are postponed. Um, access to treatment is again in in a a sort of abyss. We don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we worry about the safety of our researchers, our team, you know, the ones on the front line. Uh, we want them to stay healthy, but at the same time, we're so frustrated that everything that we've worked really hard for is now grinding to a halt. And we know that you know many labs around the country are closed down. you can't access certain things. And so there is that feeling of real frustration. Uh, in that, you know, hey, we've been working so hard at this, we've sacrificed so much, and now we're at a point where we have to just wait. And, you know, um, if, if there's anything that the rare disease community has, it's been being patient and then being told again and again, be patient. You know, you can't work miracles, but guess what? We have been working miracles and, you know, we have been moving mountains to do the things we have. And now all of a sudden nothing is in our hands now. And that's the, the scary part is like, this is, a, this is a villain that we can't really put our hands on. Like, you know, there are policies that we can write and there are things that we could change and we can talk to manufacturing and we can uh, speed up clinical trial processes. But this is a villain we were not expecting. And we were not, we didn't have a strategic plan on our board for this. Right. So how do we cope with that? I think that's really been the... The eye opener and the the shattering point for I think many of our rare disease communities. To me,
1: I mean, you are a trailblazer in in rare disease. You always have an answer to a problem, and then the news comes that your trial is on hold indefinitely. Um, and like you said, there's this is a something this is a, a villain we can't put our hands on. Um,
2: how did that feel? i'm I'm a kind of person who you know i I see a problem and I want to find a solution quickly, and you know my mind is always thinking like that like how do you how do you come up with a solution here? Well, you know it takes twenty years to get a drug well, why twenty years? what's the process? How do we shore it down to you know one year or two years? What do we need you know like I want to have tangibles, but i I don't have that in this situation, so I'm at a loss really. I don't know what can be done so um it, it is very scary. It is like, and you know, most of our, our families are, are working against the clock, right? Um, my son, he's, um, he's 11. And which means if we don't get the treatment to him soon, he may never see an impact on his life. Which means, I mean, you know, you, you want to you think about the greater good of the whole community, but that's a hard decision, you know? That's a hard reality. Uh, one of your kids will get it and the other will not or one will benefit and the other will not yeah. and you know he's he's always been my more sensitive one he's always been the one who's been asking me like you know how how much longer how much longer do i have to wait and you know this condition is painful which means that every time he's had surgery or every time he's recovering there's a lot yeah. of pain um so it's the physical pain of it all to watch that And you know, and to know that you have a treatment, and but he may just miss out on it because of something that we can't control. Right. At all. You know. At all. Yeah. Yeah. This is not a
1: policy that we can fight or try and rewrite or a meeting. Right. No. No. It's not about this.
2: Yeah, and you know, I. And I have to explain that to him. I have to explain that, you know, everything is shut down and you know our researchers can't get to the mice and we can't do what is needed. And you know, he doesn't he can't wrap his head around that. He yeah. said, Why can't we go get it? Why can't they do it? <laughs> Why can't they take it home and work on it at home like right. you
3: work?
1: <laughs> what do you see as potential opportunities? That will help our community in the long run,
2: I think Andra, I mean, that's a great question. And I know that all of us in the rare disease community are watching very carefully as you know, uh, they race towards a treatment for the covid nineteen. I mean, they're already talking trials, and that's been like in three months. So you know, we're sitting on the sidelines going, "Oh, wow, you know, that can happen. Like, yo, right. wow, that's impressive. So, if um, I think from all of this, if there is a blueprint that comes out of it that shows that we can actually get drugs to market faster, where we can cut some of this, um, you know, red tape, so to speak, and uh, have regulatory processes that will be sped up. I think, you know, in the long run, definitely this is going to be a benefit to the rare disease community. Uh, We're already seeing, you know, open science take off in ways that, you know, the rare disease community has always been talking about and asking for, I mean, literally begging. And um, here we, we see that open science model just take off, you know, repurposing of drugs is like everyone is jumping on board. So, hopefully many lessons to be learned. And, uh, you know, as they say, you know, you can't waste a crisis, right? And so <laughs> yeah. uh, we, we've we got to use this to our benefit and, you know, run with our lessons.
1: But what, what about you, Seth? What do you think are going to be some bright spots that come out of this?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm hoping that it helps kind of shift the way that we look at medical research, right? And exactly what Nina said, which is, trying to navigate the red tape that we've all been used to and saying, okay, it takes 10 to 15 or 20 years. And now we're seeing that this is uh, accelerated a lot more. And I think seeing people step up has been great, but we need to keep it happening even after this pandemic is over or even if when it slows down, because what my concern is is that when it goes back to getting better per se, that doesn't mean it's going to be better for all of us it, that you know, these health conferences and events may not happen for the rest of the year. And so how do we continue to uh, innovate with these virtual meetups and virtual events where we can have these still interactions kind of in person where you can see people, but um, versus kind of texting and whatnot. Um, I just, I think that it will hopefully be kind of a wake-up call for how do we continue to improve the healthcare system for people living with uh, rare diseases and how we can accelerate medical research. And when there are challenges, how can we bring it, uh, virtually, right? Whether it's telehealth medicine, um, or anything along those lines so that we don't have a complete stop of these trials. Um, but maybe a smaller delay versus just completely halting it.
1: What about telehealth have either of you, you mentioned telehealth, have you had a, a doctor's appointment via telehealth yet?
2: Not yet because insurance still has to approve certain um, certain uh, procedures for telehealth. Yeah. and so we have just uh, submitted all the paperwork to for our therapist to see if we can do that. Um, you know, it's interesting because um, you know for um, for diseases that require mobility uh, equipment, uh, I'm not sure how telehealth will help. Correct. Um, unless, unless, of course, you know, they're willing to also ship to our homes some of these mm-hmm. devices, which would be really nice. Um, but you know, it'll be interesting. But definitely, uh, like Seth said, that this is a move to there will be a nice push for telehealth and you know, people who can benefit from it, uh, you know, the aged population, the people who are Uh, they find it difficult to get out of their homes to go make those appointments. These are all options. They should have always been available. And I guess now we're forced into that situation. And so we're making it work. Hopefully those will be some of the things that we can take away from this. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we have centers of excellence in rare disease that are
1: often not in the states people live in. Um, I think individuals with rare disease that live in rural communities are always at a disadvantage. So I'm hopeful, I mean, like you said, not everything can be done via telehealth, but I do think some checkups could. What I didn't realize before this space is how much is involved in reimbursement, right? So our friends who need um, infusions in the hospital that could safely receive infusions at home right now to avoid going to the hospital are still having difficulty because it's not the treatment, it's where you receive the treatment that is reimbursed.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So right. um, yeah, some of those things really need to catch up so that people do have access to what they need.
3: I have used telehealth. I've been going to therapy in person and then switched over to a telehealth through like a Google Duo. I don't know if either of you are familiar with that at all. Yeah. 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 So, That's great. So it's been, it's been pretty good. Um, you know, I feel like Still having that kind of face-to-face is something that I always enjoy versus just a phone call um, just to kind of better understand where I'm coming from and seeing how they can help. But, um, you know, I wish there was ways to bring the equipment to the places or like even thinking about if there is a home infusion, um, you know, making sure that the the aide or nurse has the right equipment such as a mask and gloves. Because they're probably going to many different households as well. So that's a whole other area that we probably didn't even think of because of the shortage of, of masks to begin with.
2: Through all this it's been on my mind a lot lately, just the fact that there's so much talk about who's getting who's getting the boot here. It's like again, patients with rare disease, or people with disabilities. Again, this has been such an equalizer in that now you realize what I'm going through, but yet I'm still going to be on the sidelines here if there's a resource shortage and, you know, we can give it to somebody who has a better chance of making it out of here. Again, we're at the short end of the stick, right? I mean, it's just a very, very sad reality sometimes. And I think that itself can push people to, um, you know, very... To have that sense of anxiety or that depression or you know and I think that's why it's very important that we band together and and um you know podcasts like these are important and relevant so that our our voice is heard. I have to
1: say um Seth I know that you said uh that you didn't feel like you were uh, a higher risk category with your genetic mutation. Um, I would say I am a, at higher risk, but bigger bigger than that for me has been wanting to avoid getting it stuck in the hospital in a triage situation, because I think right. that's, that's really the trick is knowing that I would not get the ventilator over someone else. And uh, honestly, I'm not even arguing that right now. It's just those are really tough
3: conversations to have it definitely is. And I mean, that's the thing. Like I I say that I'm at higher risk, but I'm saying that, um, you know, knowing people like you, Andra, and knowing other friends and family and colleagues who are, you know, what can I do? Right. That can help. And I think that's where I'm like, you know, I don't want to also be hypothetically speaking, I get it. And then I don't take it serious. I'm asymptomatic. And I pass it on to someone and then they end up in the hospital. Right. Like, that's where I'm fearful because I don't want to be that person who then thinks, wow, this is all my fault. And dealing with that for, for, for the rest of my life. Or, you know, if, if I do happen to say, oh, I'm not at high risk and then I think I'm invincible and then end up in the hospital. And they're like, well, we don't have any more hospital beds, Um, you know, and it could end up getting a lot worse than I expect.
2: The key messaging here is like when it affects you you know, when there is an effect that impedes your environment or challenges you, then, then you start taking action, right? And and so I think how unique, how, how very profound, you know, the whole time we are here saying our lives matter and we are losing people with rare disease all the time. No one has thought about that. But just when pandemic affects you and your brother and your sister and your grandparents, then the whole world takes notice. We have a lot of weight on our shoulders uh, as advocates. I, I think I do
1: anyway and that we have a lot of responsibility to educate ourselves, our families, our individual disease communities, the rare community, um, the youth in your your young adults, but also industry. So right now, um, what, what do you want our industry partners to know about what we need?
2: Well, we need a hero. We need someone to step up. We need them to come in and say, hey, you know, we got this. We will uh, take over the manufacturing for you. We will have dedicated staff who come in, practice social distancing, uh, get this lab work done, uh, take precautions to, to and put them in place, but still get things moving. We're here to open up our science and our labs um, in in ways that we can still keep safe, but we can still keep moving forward. Um, and then think about innovative ways to do that. Um, you know, it's great that so many people have stepped up and said, "We're going to make masks for everyone." Well, we need mouse models, and we need um, you know, we need toxicology studies, and we need all of these things to move our rare disease community forward as well. So. Who are our heroes here? Who is going to step up? And who, who can be counted on? And I think, you know, when you have a crisis, who's your hero? And I think for the red disease community, it, we need to also look at pharma. How are they going to partner with us? They all know that we're in a standstill, but, you know, they're still moving on. They're moving strong in different ways. So how can we partner uh, to make sure that we still move forward?
3: Yeah, and just to add to that, I mean, it's even like that financial support, people suddenly get unemployed. Last I read, I think there's like over 8 million, maybe even up to 10 million unemployed in, in the U.S. And if a lot of those people come from families impacted by rare diseases, how do we provide that financial support to those families as well, or making sure that they still have access to their drugs so they don't have to ration their medication? Whether it's, again, I know that in the rare disease space, only 5% are you know have a treatment, but if they're on a trial that is somewhat still doable, can they still get access to that drug so that they don't lose out on all that data or lose out on, you know that drug that may have been working for them? And so I do agree, Nina, that there's definitely ways to continue moving along with clinical research, but I'm also thinking, how can we also make sure to provide that financial support, whether it's to the families or even nonprofits within these different disease states that can provide that support?
2: If there is a way that we can actually have like a checklist, hey, we need help with these areas, who's out there that can jump on board and help us. At this stage, like everybody's coming together for COVID-19, but we they also need to come together for us. Yeah. I mean, let's say we're in this
1: for the long haul. I would love to see some equalizer um, opportunities for individuals uh, who don't have uh, internet, who don't have uh, the ability to stay connected and also have conversations, participate in telemedicine, right? I mean, I think, right. I think uh, so many people with rare disease are um, below the poverty line because of all our additional challenges. So I've, I've heard of, the, of those as great needs if I would put in my two cents.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Definitely areas where we can collaborate and work together and, um, and see how we can support each other. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we'll get through this. We will get through this because we get through everything because we are rare and that's how we do it. But I think that it's okay to feel really bummed out and also persistent we know how to do both and this is just an added weight that we'll adjust to i think it's going to take a minute for our scales to adjust but i think we can
2: yeah yeah you're right i mean we can feel angry and and frustrated and we can also empathize with everyone going through this but and sympathize but also we can look for the shining lights through all of this as well because that's what rare disease patients do yeah. Well, you've been a big shining light
1: for me. It's been great to see you both. Um, I I look forward to the day that we can uh, hold this podcast interview in person because that's also always really nice. But um, I I do see the value in, in Zoom and being able to see your faces and hear your voices. And it definitely makes me feel um, comforted and... Uh, I I know that our listeners will really love hearing from both of you as well. So thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rare in Common podcast. If you enjoyed the program, you can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Rare in Common. Click. Listen. Feel.